19, one of my uh, favorite chapters, if I can uh, say that. I like to say that I know uh, every so often, but uh, some are just full, so full of great truth. It's so an important truth. And, of course, chapter 15, Paul kind of changes direction after talking about the gifts for uh, three chapters. He's now going to spend probably about as much time as he's dealt with the gifts, if you ignore the chapter headings. Uh, on the resurrection, not again, not so much Christ's resurrection, but our resurrection, what we call the blessed hope. It, it, he was going to make it very clear that if Christ be not raised, and if we do not look forward to the resurrection, we are of all men most miserable. That that uh, everything we're doing, the Christian faith, is of no value. And so it's just so many basic truths we want to look at. We'll spend a few weeks looking at some of these things, and uh, so, so let's dig in. Let's uh, remind ourselves, just as we came off of chapter 14, <clears throat> we were reminded that only one person was to speak at a time, whether it be in tongues or just preaching or whatever it was. You, you, you see here the orderliness of the service. There was a point to the service, that of edification. And so only one was to speak at a time, and it had to be understood, or they were to remain silent. And the gifts were never to cause anyone to lose control or forced to be uh, to exercise the gift. They could reframe the gift. If the Holy Spirit had given you the gift of tongues or prophecy or word of knowledge, whatever that might be, uh, you did not have to exercise that. It wasn't that anybody was had lost control, that God was just making them do stuff. They could refrain if the if the conditions weren't met. And so again, that's very interesting when we kind of compare it to modern day uh, charismatic uh, situ- uh, groups. <clears throat> we saw that women were not to teach men or to be in positions of authority over them. Uh, Paul makes it a point to say that all the churches uh, that was uh, true of all churches. There were none, no church out there that was free to disobey the God, the word. Of course, in any matter, but in that matters too. They, you're not free to uh, take the word of God to come and go, take it as you please, but you must obey the word of God. And so, uh, some very interesting things there at the end of chapter 14. Well, here, Paul changes direction. Of course, as our brother read uh, our text today, Paul begins with uh, the a, a plain presentation of the gospel, right? And it makes it very plain and obvious that I'm reminding you that this is what I preached to you, and this is what caused you to become a Christian. The truths are what you stand in. It is who you are. It is how you identify yourself. It is foundational to all that we are as Christians. And so here he changes directions to address another problem. And as we've seen in in this book, uh, all the different sections... Paul is dealing with different doctrinal problems and practices that uh, the church has. And so here is another one. And evidently there were those who were saying that uh, they weren't denying that Christ was raised. Uh, you know, as Paul says here, that was part of the gospel. If you didn't believe that, as we'll see later on, you're uh, not even a Christian. But they were saying that we're not going to be raised. That we're not, we don't have a glorified bodies to look forward to. And, and Paul is going to say, no, wait just a minute, uh, there's some real problems if what they're saying is true. And, of course, what he's going to say is that that's not true. We are, uh, we will be raised just as Christ uh, 
was raised. There's a very close connection between those two things. <clears throat> so it wasn't that they didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, but they didn't understand what they had to do with their own future and their eternal and what eternal life was all about. We are not going to be disembodied spirits throughout eternity. That is the intermediate state. When we die, we go uh, present with the Lord. We're disembodied, as it were. But we look forward to the time when uh, the graves are opened. I remember uh, someone said recently, and I thought I didn't correct them, but I thought eh, you really didn't say it. That basically, uh, that my bo- that when we die, our bodies are gone, and we'll get new bodies. And they said it in a way that it was disconnected from the uh, our old bodies. Well. Our glorified bodies, it says that the dead in Christ are raised. The graves are opened. And those bodies are changed. And I think the idea there is there's a connection. We have physical bodies. Not just something entirely different, but, but bodies as they were always meant to be. Bodies without sin. And look at all that at the end of the chapter. I just wanted to point that out and remind us about that. Bodies without sin. Uh, so this chapter Paul explains the Jesus resurrection, what it means for our future. He begins with the basic gospel message in which Christ is raised from the dead. He dies, he is buried, and he is raised again. And what, what it's going to be basically is that in a very real sense, that's what happens when you become a Christian. You uh, repent, you die to self, and uh, the old man uh, it is uh, will be uh, done away with, but the Holy Spirit comes in and makes us a new man. So there's a, a resurrection of sorts, a spiritual resurrection. We no longer are what we were, and yet we know that we're a long way from what we will be. But he exposes the real problems uh, that the denial of the resurrection of the dead leads to. He denies the resurrection. If one believes that there is no resurrection of the dead at all, then this means that Christ has not been raised from the dead. He argues back and forth from the less to the greater and the greater to the lesser. He says if, if you can't be raised, then you're basically calling the question, how can Christ be raised? Because the same power, the same God's going to do it. If he can't raise you, how do you know Jesus was raised? And so it works both ways. And of course, if Jesus is raised, then we have no reason to think that we will be raised. But he says neither is true. The fact that Jesus' resurrection gives meaning and life to every uh, other area of the gospel and Christianity uh, itself. Without it, without the resurrection, Christianity is so much wishful thinking. And that's what Paul will, will make this point. We'll get into it more next week. But without the resurrection, uh, we might as well Christianity might as well take its place among all the other religions of the world that are all false. Because they all have uh, people who starve them or in the grave. And so how do we know we're going to be any different? If, if Jesus is just a man, then everything the Bible says about him and about us, uh, it everybody. <clears throat> Jesus knew when he came into the world that he was going to die and rise again. We see this in uh, this book. We're not going to spend a lot of time in here, but in Mark 8, 36 to 31, and he began to speak to the Son of Man, brought suffering many things, and he was rejected by the elders, 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 and he was rejected by the el
especially up until the time of Jesus that time, he learned as he studied with his perfect mind, perfect intelligence, as he studied the Old Testament, he learned who he was. Now there are those, as opposed to there are those, uh, you know, good men, but, but I would disagree with them, but they believe that Jesus, when he was born as a baby, was in full awareness of who he was. Well, I believe that's one of the, the aspects of his glory that he, he gave up uh, while, while he was here on earth. Uh, just like when he says that only the Father, at the time he spoke this, while he was here on earth, only the Father knows when the Son is coming back and the world is going to end. So, you know, he gave up certain aspects of his glory that were hidden and, and not exposed. So anyway, but my point being that, you know, he... But his perfect uh, mind and perfect uh, spirit would read the Old Testament and he would put together the prophecies and realize, I'm, I'm, I'm me. You know, I'm fulfilling all these things. My mother, my, my, my parents' lineage, uh, where I was born, with all four clothes in the Old Testament. So I kind of believe that he learned all these things. And then, of course, at his baptism when he received the fullness of the Holy Spirit, he probably had the full self-awareness. Those are some things that we really, to some degree, have to speculate on. But, but obviously, in his ministry, he knew why he was here. And he also made it clear that his resurrection was the hope of our resurrection and eternal life in John 11, talking to Mary and Martha. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He understands that he is the basis for our resurrection. If we're, if we're going to have life, eternal life, he's the one who's going to give it. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, who are all going to die physically, yet shall he live. So he's pointing back to pointing back that we're going to die physically, yet that's not the end of it. But we're going to live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. They will wait to say, We're going to die. I'm not talking about eternal life. So you're going to die physically, but you're going to be raised with an uh, eternal body, with a glorified body, and you'll never die again. You'll live forever. Do you believe this? It wasn't until the disciples, under the power of the Holy Spirit, when they saw the resurrected Lord, that they ceased to be weak. And broken, the heartbroken followers of Christ became courageous. Because once they saw him resurrected, because we know that they thought he was just a nail that he was about to die, which they didn't want that to happen. They kind of, you can see it putting out of their minds, I don't believe that. But once it happened, and he's raised again, all of a sudden they're changed. Because they have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, but they're, they're changing. Why is that? Because once they saw his power over death, they knew that everything he promised to them had to come true. It was real. There was no way to deny it. So, so they could go to their own death. Uh, and be happy to do so because they knew that the reality was Jesus Christ lives. I think a case to be made that this is true of us. I think that's what Paul would be doing in this chapter. Our effectiveness and spiritual strength in part lies in grasping the fact that Jesus sits in, on heaven's throne 
and reigns, and we will be with him soon. Because if none of that's true, then why are we doing what we're doing? Why does a Christian give up what little pleasure maybe or things that people have in this life? Because we know there's something better because he is gone before us. He's proven it. If the resurrection has little place in our worldview, it's we're going to struggle to be strong in faith, right? But if we know that Christ is on the throne, that he has proven himself to be the mighty son of God, then we know we can rely on what he says. But if you really don't sure what, what's going to happen to you after you die, that's going to be hard for you to uh, say no to temptation and be strong in the faith now. And Paul will show uh, later that without the resurrection, salvation couldn't be provided. And, and without belief in the resurrection, salvation can't be received. In other words, it, it, it's the res- remember in uh, Romans, he says, we are raised uh, for your justification. He was raised for our justification. So the resurrection was proof of his power over sin, that his sacrifice actually forgave our sins. Uh, but but the, and, and then we're told that you have, if you don't believe in it, though, that's part of the gospel. You have to believe that Christ not only is who he said he is, but he proved that he was who he said he was by the resurrection. Uh, a couple of verses here, Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So, not one or the other. Yes, Jesus is Lord. He's God. He's, he's the, the ruler of the universe. He's, he's the king of our, of the kingdom. But you've also got to believe from your heart that he's raised. Because if he's dead, we've got big problems. He can claim anything he wants. But, in, but when you die, and that's the end of it, then, then uh, no one's going to take you very seriously. Now, if this be true, what does this say about those deceivers who call themselves Christians who don't necessarily believe that Jesus is raised from the dead? They don't believe the tomb is empty. Maybe some of you, the older, older of you anyway, would remember, I don't know how long it's been, 10, 15, 20 years, they found an ossuary in Jerusalem that had, I don't know if they had Joshua's name on it or Joseph, maybe from Arimathea, but it was an ossuary which, you know, the, the tombs and many bodies were laid to rest and so a body would decay and they would kind of decay and they would set it aside and they'd put another one in there and these set aside uh, boxes of bones, whatever were called ossuaries and so someone Reads one and, well, this, this right here could be Jesus' ossuary. It's Jesus' bones here. And of course he has no proof. It's just not a lot of skeptical nonsense. But I remember them interviewing, of course the world loves to run right off to the most liberal expert that they can find and they're telling him about this. What if this is Jesus' bones? What does that mean? And this, uh, professing Christian says, well, you know what? If it is Jesus' bones, it wouldn't make any difference to my faith. Well, first of all, it's denying what Paul's saying here. But just think about it. What he's saying is, I really don't believe in in, in the hell and, and, and in the afterlife. I don't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. I don't believe Jesus was God. I don't believe the Bible. 
my faith is merely whatever is good for me, whatever helps me now. You know, my moral code, whatever in his mind Christianity was. And Paul says, no, if Jesus is dead, the whole thing's a farce. You might as well just go out and live like the world. Because Christianity is not just a better way. It is not just a way to help me cope with life. Now, it does it. It does it better than anything else because our Creator knows how to live. But, but Christianity is about a resurrected Lord. It is about the plan of God in redeeming sinners and making us to be what we were created to be. It is not about you just how self-centered it is to think, well, my faith is just whatever helps me. And whatever helps you, that's okay. No. If Christ is Lord, the resurrected Lord, he's Lord of all. Every knee's going to bow the knee in that day. So, just a, 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 a pathetic display of someone who calls themselves a Christian. And, and contrary to everything that Paul is saying here. <clears throat> and so, in the first few verses, Paul gives us the essence of the gospel. And some evidences of the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, we don't, we wouldn't believe anything else that happened about the cross and all that. Because how do you know it, it's true uh, if, if he be not raised? And so if you're going to speak about the results of something, you want to first establish the fact of the reality of what you're talking about, right? And so the order of events were that he came to them and preached it. They received or believed it. Thus they stand in it. In other words, I, if you believe this, then I am putting myself, I'm, I'm, I'm attaching myself to Jesus, and I'm going to sink or swim with him. Another way the Bible puts it is that I'm going to, you stand upon the rock of Jesus. And that's your foundation, right? <clears throat> and apart from believing the gospel, we have no standing before the Lord. And as you read the first couple of verses, uh, you see that he's saying that. I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Of course, he's worried, of course, that some of these people who were denied the resurrection weren't really believers to begin with. <clears throat> but it's interesting to me that Paul sees fit as he gives the bare bones foundational tenets of the gospel that we stand upon that he um, <clears throat> makes the point that just because you says you believe at some point doesn't mean that you're saved. That you've got to continue. <clears throat> you know, he make he feels it's important enough to to remind everybody that those who are truly saved will continue to the end. And if you don't, you prove yourself not to be saved at all. And, of course, there are those who don't believe that. There are those who say, well, you can be lost, and you can get saved again and get lost. And Paul says, no. He, Paul believes in perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. But but not in a presumptuous way, but in a way in which you follow after Christ until the day that you die. And so it's interesting that he feels that that was part of the foundational aspects of the gospel. True conversion will continue to the end, or isn't true conversion. Again, it doesn't mean that we can lose our salvation, but it's a warning against those who uh, begin, who say they believe, but, but there's no change. And we saw this in John chapter 2, 
where Jesus um, said, said that many people believed in Jesus because of the signs that he performed, but Jesus didn't commit to them because he knew their hearts. So just because someone says they believe doesn't mean they actually do. Where, how do you know? Well, they continue to the end. They've given their heart to Christ. True saints hold fast to what follows. So we know that this is our only life and our, and our only hope. We stand or fall upon the work of Christ and nothing else. Without him, we have nothing. And we also notice here what he that he includes that we are being saved. It's a process. It's interesting, again, that Paul uh, doesn't refer always to salvation as something that happened in the past. Now, we were converted at, in the past. You were converted at a time in which you believe, whatever that might be, right? But salvation is a process. He says we are being saved. So we are converted, but we still have a sinful bodies, right? We, we still have a long ways to go. So God is working in us, bringing us along. We're persevering until the time that we receive our full salvation, which is when we are glorified. So, so we're, we're, we're converted, we're saved, but salvation is also a process. And uh, there's many places in Scripture where we see that. But he says here in verse 3 that this is of first importance, and all other doctrine revolves around or hinges on this. For I delivered to you of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died. Of course, Paul was an apostle, so he was an official witness. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But what this is, there's some facts here. Christ died for our sins. So there's a reason why Christ died. He didn't die to be your example. He died to be making atonement for sins. As the scriptures if you refer to the Old Testament, we'll see some of this in a moment. The Old Testament taught that Christ would come and he would die for sin, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Again, according to the scriptures, the, the, the scriptures teach that Christ would be raised again. And then he appeared to Cephas or Peter, then to the twelve. And, and, and we'll get into that here in just a moment. So, uh, the, this is the first thing that Paul taught anyone when he came into a town and he tells us that he received this from the Lord. And so his first evidence of the resurrection is that the Lord has arisen and uh, the gospel has brought them to salvation. In other words, one of the proofs that Jesus is on the throne is that people are being saved. That the Holy Spirit has been sent and through the preaching of the gospel, they're being converted and they're, because they're renouncing sin. They're following Christ. That's, that's one of the evidences, not the not the historical evidence of the of the uh, of resurrection, but it's an evidence that Christ is alive and that He sits upon the throne. The second, He says, is that He received this directly from the risen Lord, which is applied again down in verse eight, where He says, "Last of all, as." To one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So we know that on the road to Damascus, the risen Lord appeared to Paul. He sees him. Of course, Paul knew, probably had seen Christ before in all likelihood. But he saw Christ as a resurrected Lord. He was converted. And that 
He spent a couple of years in Arabia learning from the Lord himself. And so the Lord had commissioned him to be an apostle. So Paul says, I have seen the resurrected Lord. And of course, he's going to list all these other people who have seen the resurrected Lord. And so these, there are three facts that are fundamental to our faith. Jesus died as a substitution for our sins. He was buried, which speaks of being uh, dead and gone. He actually died. He physically died. But he also physically was raised again. The third proof, he says, is according to the scriptures. He says his resurrection was foretold in the Old Testament. Remember Jesus telling the disciples on the road to Emmaus that they should have known that Christ was going to die, be crucified, and be raised again because the scriptures uh, told that. But of course, they don't say it, uh, too far here. They don't say it, they don't use the term cross and like that, and so, you know, the Jews were slow to, to get it. But now that we have the New Testament, we can see it. It makes it obvious. And so, he said to them, O foolish ones who slow apart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer, the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So when he put it all together, he says, this, the Old Testament, all, all it did is speak of Christ. The whole, the whole Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. Um, Peter quotes, uh, at, at the, uh, when he's preaching at Pentecost, uh, says much the same thing. He actually quotes from the Old Testament in one of the places you can see this. He quotes from, uh, I think it's Psalm 110. For you, uh, David said, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. Now you could understand why the Jews didn't quite understand exactly what's going on here, but Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says that was a prophecy. David was prophesying, looking forward to the day when Jesus would die, be buried, but would not be allowed to see corruption, but was raised in third days, in three days. And you know, the Hebrews had a uh, tradition that a body didn't truly become corrupt until the fourth day of, after death. And that might be what he was referring to, but Peter says it, it's a prophecy about the fact that Jesus Christ was not going to uh, rot away. He was going to be raised and raised soon. Later, Paul says in Acts 26, 22, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets of Moses would say would come to pass. That the Christ was suffered, and that by, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Again, we don't have time to look at all these verses, but we saw how that the uh, Paul bring this out. We'll see it next week. The, the uh, Pentecost and the Old Testament uh, feast of Pentecost and first fruits, where the uh, he would gather a little bit of the harvest first, and the rest would come later. Uh, all that was speaking about uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll deal more with that, Lord willing, uh, next week. Well, we could spend uh, the rest of our time showing this, but let me just give you uh, some quick examples. Genesis 3.15 talks about uh, you will uh, you will bruise your heel 
about Satan, but you will crush his head, right? So Christ would be injured, the Messiah would be injured, but not in a fatal way, right? It's, it's a very, it's, it's a very first prophecy. It doesn't say a whole lot, but it, it starts, you start building upon it. Abraham and Isaac, remember that he was going to, Isaac, a type of Christ, Abraham was going to kill him, but there was a substitute made, the, the ram in the thicket, and uh, Hebrews tells us that that was looking forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Isaac was a type. We saw it with Joseph and his humiliation, but then being raised to be the, the uh, next to Pharaoh. Uh, that in, in types, he shows uh, the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jonah in the whale, three days and three nights. Jesus uses that to speak of his own resurrection. So, and there's other ones that we can't, uh, just don't have time to go into. In verse 5, the next proof, he says is that Jesus appeared to Peter. So notice what he's doing here. He says, this is not based on hearsay, uh, visions that maybe some people saw, things going on that nobody could quite explain, and we're trying to twist this in some way to make it look like maybe Jesus arose. No, he appeared to people. He says, people who are still alive today. And, and so he says, he appeared to Peter. Now, we're not told of this particular appearance. We know that he appeared to Peter different times, but he evidently appeared to Peter uh, by himself, probably because Peter had denied him earlier. Peter was going to be kind of the leader of the apostles to start with, and so uh, the Lord strengthens his faith. Um but there were uh, these uh, other appearances were documented in the Gospels uh, because they were the official witnesses. Jesus commissions them to spread the Gospel, to tell them to be a witness of what you have seen in me and what it means. And that's what. And of course, they did that primarily as they wrote down the Word of God. That the Word of God, that the New Testament, is their witness. You know. So, so what Peter, what uh, Paul is saying is that. Listen, there are all kind of eyewitnesses that Jesus is alive. The, the resurrection of Christ is one of the most attested things in antiquity. Eyewitnesses make a big difference. You know, some of us were, uh, remember the L.J. Simpson trial. And uh, there were a lot of, uh, you know, people who believed he was innocent, people who believed he was guilty. Uh, we all remember uh, the ill-advised attempt of the lawyers to get him to put on that uh, glove, that bloody glove, but they didn't make him take off his uh, the the uh, not the um, latex glove he had, and so the glove didn't go on very well, and and they used that to show that it really wasn't his glove, and all the and all that though was based on circumstantial evidence, right? Every, everything in that trial was circumstantial evidence because nobody saw the murders. Now, had there been an eyewitness, everything would have changed. He either. Either he would have been convicted or, or he wouldn't have been brought up a trial at all because somebody saw it. And that's what Peter, Peter, or Paul is saying. We've, we've seen Christ. What do you think I'm, he says, I'm, I'm suffering the way I do and, and these beatings and all the things that these apostles have gone through because we've seen Jesus. In verse 6, he, he says, uh, he goes on to say, not just Cephas, but he appeared to 500 brothers at one t- just at one time. So there's been several hundred people who have seen him. 500 at one time. 
And he says most of them are still alive. And this is probably, in one sense, one of the best evidences he uses because what he's saying is that Jesus rose from the dead and um, if, if this was not the case, the people who were still alive would, would say, wait just a minute, that never happened. You're making all this up. But he says their, their witnesses are all around, so ask them. If I'm saying something is wrong, let them come forward. But of course, no one did. Truth, truth can stand up to examination. And that's, as I've said before, in living in our day, where truth is such a problem to get at, anybody who will not allow for free speech, anyone who wants to shut down free speech, you know, right or wrong, does so because they don't believe the truth, because truth can stand up to examination. And you only want to uh, close down uh, questions when you cannot stand the examinations. So Paul does not appeal to circumstantial evidence to prove the resurrection of Christ, but rather the testimony of more than 500 eyewitnesses, most of whom, remember this is, he wrote this only about 20 years after Jesus' uh, resurrection anyway. And so the Corinthians should be reminded of the firm basis of which the resurrection of the Lord has in history. Christianity is based on what happened in history. It is not just the teachings that, uh, you know, philosophy. It is about concrete things that happen in history and uh, what those things mean. Luke sums up, who was, of course, himself a historian, sums up these words in Acts. Um, well, uh, here's another uh, Old Testament uh, verse that shows the resurrection, right? Where it says, yet he, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Talking about Jesus, of course, the Messiah. He would put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper at his hand. So he will be crushed. He will be crucified. He, he, he was making an offering for sin on the cross, but his days will be prolonged. So right there is a very, one of the most plainest places in the Old Testament that speaks of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then Luke says here in Acts 1, when he was writing the book, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So again, it was all, he was all over the place for, for uh, 40 days, and lots and lots of people saw him. And Paul says it's important for us to remember that. And then back in our text, um, he goes on to say, he appeared to James and then all the apostles. And that James is not not James, uh, the apostle James, because he was dead. But he's talking about James's brother. I thought I would just quote Albert Barnes, who kind of explains who this James was, in case you weren't quite in, uh, sure. This James, the father says, was James the less, the brother. Uh, again, some of the earlier church, the later earlier church fathers, as Mariolatry was already becoming a thing through the centuries, some referred to the brothers of Jesus as cousins. 
but that is a, clearly a heresy. But he's just kind of putting the facts out here. The brother of the Lord Jesus. The other James was dead in Acts 12, you see that, when this epistle was written. This James that Paul is talking about is the author of the epistle that bears his name. That is the book of James. Jesus' half-brother wrote that. He was stationed in Jerusalem. When Paul went there after his return from Arabia, he had an interview with James. Uh, in Galatians, then he said this was recorded in Galatians 1.19, where it says, But the other the apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. And it is highly probable, he goes on to say, that Paul would state to him the vision which he had of the Lord Jesus on his way to Damascus, and that James also would state to Paul the fact that he had seen him after he arose. And this may be the reason why Paul here mentions the fact because he had it from the lips of James himself. So is it important? James was an important part person. He was the half-brother Jesus was considered an apostle, one of the lesser apostles. That's why uh, it says James and to all the apostles. Well, he just got through saying that he appeared to the twelve. Those are the official apostles, but the other apostles were the lesser ones, ambassadors sent out from the church, but they, they weren't the twelve. And so that's just so you have some idea of what he's referring to here. And then lastly, in verses 8 and 9, Paul brings himself up. He understands that he has no right to be an apostle. He's, he was busy killing Christians. He, he let the, yet the Lord appeared to him and saved him and made him an apostle. And he never got over that. You know, he understood that he was murdering Christians. He had no right to be saved, let alone to be an apostle. And he was truly grateful for that. The word here, um, one born out of, out of season or untimely, is the word that meant abortion or miscarriage back in the day. In other words, Paul came too late to be part of the twelve. And in a sense, he was dead and useless as he's murdering Christians. But the Lord shows great mercy in giving him this honor and coming back and visiting Paul after the fact and making him an apostle. So Paul never doubted his apostleship. He didn't believe he was as, he was worthy like the other ones were. It's like say he was made one out of season later on. He understood that he was, in one sense wasn't uh, of the like the first twelve or eleven were. But he was made an apostle, and therefore he exercised his apostolic authority. But you see here the evidence that he's using. So in verse 10, this is what our testimony should consist of when we testify. He gives a great testimony. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I didn't deserve it, but who does? None of us deserve to be saved. But it's his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. He used that, the fact that he was a murderer of Christians and not one of the twelve, to motivate him to work, in some cases, harder than the original ones, evidently. Because he realized just what a a gift it was, that he was who he was. But when we stand up and we testify, that's what we want to hear. I owe it all to the Lord. I'm one born out of season. I, I, I deserve hell. I understand that. But the Lord showed mercy. He gets all the praise. Anything I am, it's because of what he did. 
You don't get up and testify and say, well, you know, I've done this for the Lord, I've done that for the Lord. Now, nobody wants to hear that. We want to hear what Jesus has done because he's the only one that matters. And the only reason we do anything is because of the power that he gives us. And so three things that we see in Paul that we should expect in ourselves, and that is, first of all, a deep recognition of our sin. Secondly, a, a complete change of character. Once, when that's what repenting is, we're repenting of, of the old way, we're turning now and following Christ. And so a, a redirection of our energy. We, we once were sinners, uh, only doing what we wanted to do, and now we give ourselves to the Lord. A complete change. And that brings us into verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, and, and Paul kind of comes back to earth here and says, look, I'm not jealous of anybody. Whether you heard the gospel through somebody else or through me, it doesn't matter. We preached, and what happened? You believed. So he kind of comes full circle. The last evidence goes back to the first, that when the gospel was preached, and you see sinners all of a sudden, turning their back on their sin, and loving the Lord, only the Holy Spirit can do that. Now, there's a lot of people who can reform. You know, the AA is full of people who have reformed. You know, they've seen the effects of alcohol, the effects of drugs, and they've said, look, I've got to clean myself up, I've got to change, and and they've reformed, and that's all well and good as far as it goes. But when you, when a sinner, uh, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and gives themselves to Christ and starts following him, following light and not darkness, that's a work, a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, of the Sovereign Lord. And that's what Paul's saying. Look at yourselves, and right there, uh, in the fact that you believe the gospel, which he's already, remember in chapter 1, he says the, 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 the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to this world. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They, they see a God on a cross? What's that all about? But once the Holy Spirit exposes you and understand what's going on there, that, he says, is evidence that all this is true. I'm going to go back to, uh, here, we're done here, but Romans 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I didn't emphasize that the first time, but think of what he's saying there. It's not, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, something happened in the past. You believe that he is Lord, that he is upon the throne, that he is resurrected, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So that is a supernatural act that Paul is saying shows that um, Jesus Christ is alive. Now he'll go on next week he'll he'll show the ramifications of, of all that. The first thing he does is to make sure they understood that the resurrection has taken place. It had to because the Old Testament scriptures said it would, because Jesus said it would. And if Jesus, if he's not alive, Jesus lied. Jesus was mistaken. And that he's still got big problems that are insurmountable. And so that's the gospel. That's the good news. Not social reform, not moral direction, not cleaning up one's life, 
so that you can have a better marriage or whatever. Christianity stands or falls on the historical fact of the cross and the resurrection. Otherwise, we don't have Christianity. We have another religion. And Christianity is not another religion. It is the way, the truth, and the life. And so he starts here because some of the Corinthians didn't believe in their own resurrection. And if one believes there's no resurrection of the dead at all, then he's, he's going to go on to show that this means that Christ could not be raised from the dead. And if Christ isn't raised from the dead, we've got problems that cannot be surmounted. Christ is a liar, or Christ was deceived himself, and that the apostles are liars, or the apostles are deceived. Either case is unacceptable. And of course, we know it's not the case. So that's where we will head to, Lord willing, uh, next week. Any questions or comments? Yes, George. So, uh, Brother George, why don't you close us in prayer and ask for his blessings on